Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Omar Saker. Omar Saker is an Arab-Australian poet from Western Sydney. His first collection of poetry, These Wild Houses, was shortlisted for the Judith Wright Award and the Kenneth Slessor Prize for Poetry. Omar's latest collection, the one we'll be talking about today, is The Lost Arabs. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And on Final Draft, I explore the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture, each week featuring an Australian writer and exploring their latest work. Now, the podcast is a great chance to hear more of those discussions. There's not always time to get everything up on air. It's also a way to get inside the books that you love. Now, we're still celebrating Sydney Writers' Festival at Final Draft, and just like last week, I've got two episodes featuring artists that were at the festival and, in this case, new poetry to share. If you don't want to miss a thing, make sure you subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. Just click subscribe, it means the new episode is just going to drop into your phone, your pad, wherever you listen. You can also give the show a rating, and doing that, it really helps other book lovers find great conversations and shares your love of great Australian writing around. The Lost Arabs explores identity, family and social art, with Omar delving into what it means to be an Arab Australian, to be gay and how these identities are never just personal. The collection, though, is deeply personal, but also looks at a a social look at the ways in which identity and community are structured and then legitimised or denied. And I'm joined in the studio by Omar Saker. Omar is an Arab-Australian poet from Western Sydney. His first collection of poetry, These Wild Houses, was shortlisted for the Judith Wright Award and the Kenneth Slessor Prize for Poetry. He's been published widely in journals and anthologies, and he's here today with a new collection, The Lost Arabs. Omar, welcome to 2SER. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you for coming in because I found this a beautiful collection, but I was also struck by the fact that I'm reading from my own particular position as a white cisgendered straight male living in sydney i live in australia you know i'm part of a, a settler society mm-hmm. on essentially stolen land now my perspective in some ways may mirror yours but is also in other ways miles from your experience and i wondered as you write what does readership mean to you if it means anything yeah that's a great question um Obviously, everyone reads from their own uh, particular subjectivities, uh, and I am um, similar in the sense that you know I am, I am an Arab Muslim, bisexual, um, also living on stolen land, and it's important that we acknowledge uh, the kind of colonial monstrosity that we're living in and the damage it's doing to various. Uh, bodies, in particular indigenous bodies, but also refugees and also um, new migrants, and um, in particular, in my case, you know, and on Arabs and Muslims. Um, so the idea of readership is very important, right? I think there's a focus on writers. I think there's a focus on writing. You know, who's allowed to write what, for example. Um, but not enough focus on reading because I think it's one of the most extraordinarily intimate things you can do mm-hmm. is to read because what you're doing when you're reading is you're allowing another voice to enter your mind. Mm-hmm. That most personal space, 
You're allowing another voice to enter your mind. You're allowing another history to enter your mind. Um, and there's no defense against that once you are allowing someone in. Um, but I think that's why there's so much pushback so often from white writers who are like, well, we're allowed to write whatever we want. You know what I mean? We're allowed to, where we can, you know, it's an act of empathy. Mm. No, it's an act of ego. An act of empathy would be to actually read the work of indigenous writers, of Arab writers, of Muslim writers, mm. um, to allow our voices uncensored to enter your mind, our histories, our pain, our joys, our loves, you know, our fantasies and our nightmares. Um, because we already have lived and experienced, you know, the manifold white versions of that. Mm. Um, so it's important to me for sure that I'm read and that I'm read well. And in particular, you know, I write uh, foremost for uh, queer Arabs and queer people of color, Muslims. Um, I hope always to be able to pay back the debt that I owe to the writers who helped save my life, mm. who helped me get through the hardships that I've faced, I feel a debt. Mm. And so I write in the hopes that the people who need it most will find my voice the way that I found other voices. So the flip side of that then is how voices are asked for or even demanded. And mm. the the burden perhaps that is put on people to perform, to explain, to be a certain way. And I was struck by the opening of your poem, Meaning. Uh, and if I can... Mm -hmm. I'm tired of summoning my heritage out of a battered magician's hat. And through meaning, you explore places of, of welcoming and exile, and you plead, do not draw fixed lines around my origin. So I wondered then about how the performance of your poetry, how does that intersect with your identity and the reader's calling forth a version of you? Yeah. Um, so I have a complicated background. <laughs> um, my father was Turkish. He was born in Turkey. My mother is Lebanese. She was born in Lebanon, and I was born here. Um, but I was raised with my Lebanese family uh, only. Um, so, you know, I'm aware that I have multiple heritages. I'm also uh, bisexual. So I'm aware always that for some people I'm too Arab, you know, or I'm too Turkish, or amongst those communities i'm too australian or you know too muslim to the wider australian community or not muslim enough or not arab enough or not turkish enough or not male enough or too male or do you know what i mean like mm. i have uh, a number of communities to which i belong um and but that's not the entirety of me um and i'm aware always of how those uh, identities are received. Um, and there are strategies uh, that you can employ, I think, uh, around that. But for me, it's sort of like I, I wanted in this book to explore multiple versions of myself. Mm -hmm. Not There's no one true authentic self. There mm -hmm. are multiple uh, versions of me that have played out in different communities um, and in different poems. So I just wanted to kind of 
give voice to them. It sounds like naming or perhaps even the privilege of not having to be named plays a a big role. And I was struck then by you talking about different identities and how in different spaces you can be more than or not enough of one. And Mm. in the the poem Self-Portrait of What Graces the Night, uh, the the lines the moon does not identify as moon, so it it has this privilege of not having to name, because nobody has tried to crush it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, a really yeah, that's really perceptive. Um, I do think that we have been named um, in an attempt to limit us. Um, and the naming, the original kind of act of naming in this in in Western societies was derogatory. It was negative. We were supposed to be ashamed of it, um, of 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 our histories and of where we come from, and we're seen as backward and and uncultured and all of these things. Um, so there is definitely a power in reclaiming that name um, and saying, "I'm going to use it, in fact, as a way to survive." Mm. Um, and I think I think that's uh, something that's been going on for, sadly, you know, generations um, of migrant writers um, of like the the undesired or unacceptable, the writers from the margins um, who have been doing this kind of work. Um, and I think you know, with all this stuff about identity politics today, I think it's a a reaction to the fact that we're taking pride in it now because we were never meant to. We were never meant to find common ground. We were never meant to be like in solidarity with each other. We were never meant to be like, yeah, I'm Arab and I'm proud. You know, there's a there's a long history of Arab being said as an as a dirty word. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that I've lived through. I've heard people say it like it's like it's the most disgusting thing they've ever encountered and there's you know if you know the work of uh, Jack G. Shaheen who uh, you know spent his life documenting Hollywood movies and TV shows that depicted Arabs you know thousands of movies over a hundred years showing Arabs in as caricatures Mm -hmm. as untrustworthy as savages Uh, it's you know it's really extraordinary how relentless that imagining is of us Mm. um and we have to be equally relentless in saying no you do not get to define us um Mm. you know we have to do the complicated and messy defining of ourselves um and there's no there's no real right way to do it you know i'm not interested in saying I am this one thing or uh, this one thing that I am is perfect, is valuable, is moral or, or any of that. You know what I mean? It's, it's messy, it's complicated, it's human. It seems like we're seeing this almost completely unironic uh, pushback from sectors of the white population where words like white supremacist are being railed at by the very people who would use derogatory term the derogatory terminology that you're talking about even even the word white is pushed pushed back against by some people who have never been used to hearing themselves called a name or given a label yeah it's it's really it's fascinating in a kind of horrifying way because we had the white australia policy 
not long ago. Mm. You know what I mean? It only ended in the in the seventies. Like yeah, that's not a bad name. That's just a fact of history. They're not subtle about it. They're not subtle about the foundations of this, you know, colonial nation. They were very adamant about whiteness being the the core, the the ideal. They were very adamant about it, very public about it, and you know what? They still are. Mm. Um, so it's ludicrous when people say, "Oh, I'm 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 not white." You know what I mean? Like, or I don't I don't benefit from the the various. Um, privileges that come from it, but in in the distress of some people who do react that way, I think it's telling. Yeah. It's telling that even hearing themselves called something against their inclination is enough to produce a kind of panic. While maintaining all their power and privileges, it was still enough to maintain a panic. Mm. Right to to instigate a panic. So it's like, imagine if you actually didn't have those privileges. Imagine if you actually had to deal with structural racism. If your opportunities were limited because of that whiteness, I think what we would be seeing would be much darker and much more violent. And it's actually kind of where we're heading. Mm. If you look at what's been happening, if you look at even in America, if you look at the kind of the riots the, in, in Charleston, the, the, the white men with the torches mm-hmm. and, the, and the whatnot, and uh, the various shooters who have been attacking places of worship um, and, and other places in America and, and abroad, most recently, of course, in, in, in Christchurch. Um, and it's like it's i don't know that people who are saying don't call me white or who are trying to shut down the conversation i don't know if they're fully conscious of the end of the spectrum that they're on Hmm. and where 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 the conversation and the the various policies that our government implements where it's heading One of the aspects of privilege that we just talked about there are the ways that particularly dominant cultures can interact or choose not to interact with violence. Mm. And I was struck by the contrast of the the really visceral images of violence, of wars, that Mm. you remind us in the collection that as a dominant culture we can allow ourselves to ignore, and the daily lives that in themselves contain another type of violence that we can perpetuate on ourselves, that we can Mm. can perpetuate on others. And it was in the progression of the four poems, How to Destroy the Body Slowly, that you seem to be showing me, or this is what I felt, uh, the violence of living every day for a hundred years, if you're so lucky, but never to waste a single day on a rose. And the rose, I I, I saw, was contrast with divinity and faith, an old bear in the chamber of your heart, best left sleeping. Can Mm. you tell me about that violence of everyday living? Yeah, look, it's um, very much a kind of normalized part of our lives today that we might be on, and it's a, and it's absolutely a part of our privilege in in the West um, that we will see on social media or on the news uh, extraordinary violence, extraordinary violence is being done uh, to people overseas, particularly um, in the in the Middle Eastern and, and North African regions, and it's 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 like almost routine. Um, and the I wanted to speak about 
the images of of suffering and pain that we're consuming and then we almost we don't have time to reckon with what that actually means and and our own uh complicity in what's what's going on um because the next day there's another image or you know it's kind of it's unremarked on in the sense that uh the impact of it is is lost in jargon or is statistics uh in this kind of depersonal language mm. um uh it's impersonal language um yeah so i i honestly i honestly believe that it is destroying us i don't believe that you can it's a, it's a kind of amazing and horrifying arrogance to think that you can inflict violence on the other side of the world and that that violence won't impact you mm. of course it is of course it's impacting us um any any kind of these kinds of injustices i think are are, are rotting away at our psyches our minds um to say nothing of the of the the impact it's having on the the it's the victims mm. in these countries um and the countries themselves uh and so yeah i wanted to say something about it uh <laughs> i wanted to be like it's 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 part of our responsibility to actually look mm. to actually listen to at the very very least see what is happening mm. and so many people are refusing to do even that In the poem you invoke this idea of living 100 years if if you should be so lucky. Now a, a person who perhaps today had lived 100 years would have a sense of the scope and perhaps even the context of of how the cycle of violence began or it was at least perpetuated mm. and would maybe have a greater sense of our complicity as an ally to the United States and the way that certain uh, colonial ideas are continually propped up through wars that don't seem to have any any particular um direct linkage do you think we've we've lost the ability to have that sort of perspective i don't think we've lost the ability i just think it's rarer mm. um and when we see you know government cuts to the arts when we see uh newspapers um and the the changes they've made to the way they report um because of funding shortages uh you know we see where the where the value is being put in terms of our public discourses and it is toward a more immediate more reactive uh kind of cycle of of information hmm. um and i think yeah absolutely that's really damaging i think um and not not just in the arts or not just in media but also our education which is you know wildly unequal um we have all these private schools which are overfunded which have an excess to the tune of millions of dollars while there are public schools you know i went to a public school i went to a disadvantaged public school liverpool boys high um where there are schools that are, are really struggling um mm. to have the the resources um to teach kids the things that they need to know and the critical thinking especially that they need to be able to look at what's being said and um understand it on a level beyond the kind of surface 
propaganda or the mm. surface uh, desired response that it's trying to instill in you as a reader. A key, a key to that process, I feel like, is is awareness, but it's also memory. It's that ability to to think beyond the moment and. Some lines that I that I just pulled out and was trying to make sense of from your poem, Instead Memory, uh, which is, I'm, I've pulled out a very small part of that poem, but it's, it's, I am obliged to love what I cannot erase. My memories ache for this to be true. They do not want to die. Even my darkest knowing seeks the light. And for me, this felt, this was an aching, sort of almost an aching confession that could be writ large, but it is also very personal. I wondered, though, how you you go about reconciling self and memory, how you work through those, or if... if you <laughs> I don't. Perhaps that's a, a constantly recursive process rather than a linear. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's certainly something that I, I circle around, you know, the various kind of traumas in my life that I, part of me really wishes I could get rid of. Um but have also made me who I am. We, we live in a world where we're not really allowed to do that, though, are we? We're supposed mm. to, I mean, particularly we're in the middle of a political campaign yeah. where um, it feels like everyone has to be their best self and their any other self must be hidden, whether on the left that is uh, hiding the extreme left views that you have and on the mm. right it's the extreme right views. Mm. Um, is is that sort of have we have we lost room for uh, those uh, the darkest knowings that you um, you describe? I hope not. I think what we see a lot are um, false certainties, right? We see certainties pushed um, from really from every every angle. Um, and what I'm uh, as as someone who has suffered various traumas in my life you know uncertainty is my guiding principle so it kind of it leaves me in a unsettled place which is not great for uh my mental health uh, my anxiety but you know it it's also a really generative position um and i think we need to express all of these things. I don't think uh, it's good to just repress or pretend. Um, we live and have grown up in a racist society, a sexist society, a patriarchal society, a homophobic society, a transphobic society, right? And I want, I think it's ridiculous to claim that you're not racist. I'm racist. I think it's ridiculous to claim that you're not homophobic, I'm homophobic, right? I say this as a bisexual man, right? Mm. I, I say this as an Arab man, I say this as a Muslim man. All of the forces that inform our culture have sunk into us to some degree or other. I don't believe that anybody is unaffected by it. I think the what we should be talking about and what we sh how we should be framing it is you know it's an everyday activity to be anti-racist it's an everyday activity to be anti-homophobic an everyday activity to fight against uh sexism and misogyny and, and how women and trans people are treated um it's not ever a, a destination that you're going to reach and and occupy comfortably 
So that's just going back to the idea of, of the certainties that people are putting out, these kind of like um, moral high grounds that people are staking out. And it's like, no, you know, you grew up in this culture. It's like we're all in this swamp together. Don't say mm. that you're, <laughs> you're clean. Mm. You're not. None of us are. So what we all should be doing is trying to orient toward justice, toward kindness and inequality that is just nowhere in sight. Now, in the eponymous poem of your collection, you describe my certainty collapses, that I am lost or can be found, that there is such a thing as Arab. Now, at the moment, it's a race to the bottom for racist Australians. And while any non-white body seems fair game, it's brown bodies and Muslims that are being particularly targeted. We have Nazis (laughs) in our society, in our government, the media is also complicit with these sort of almost cartoonish stereotypes of gang members. Mm. Um, amidst all this hyperbole, and this is I, I, probably something that goes very much to the heart of the collection, who are the lost Arabs? Yeah. So, uh, I have a dear friend of mine, Najman Darwish, who I wrote this the poem, The Lost Arabs, for, um, told me when we were in Mexico that... I'm one of the lost Arabs. So he's the one who introduced the phrase to me. He said, you know, you're one of the lost Arabs, one of millions um, who have lost their connection to their uh, language. I'm not literate um, or fluent in Arabic. Mm. Um, And so I wanted to explore that idea a little bit because I think it's, you know, there's... Um, certainly some truth to it um, and there's also not Uh, there's Arabs all over the world who are part of the same um, diaspora that I'm I'm from you know the Lebanese diaspora in in the 70s there was a civil war and that lasted for some I think 15 years and 40% of the country fled to various parts of the world, um, including including Australia. And that's not the only kind of mass um, migration that has taken place there. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're all over. We're, we're hybrid, hybridized in, in America, in Australia, in the UK, in Canada, you know, in Brazil, uh, in Mexico. The, you know, they have big um, Lebanese populations as well. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, uh, I think um, I don't want to say that we are lost. I don't, I'm not in that poem. I'm disagreeing with, with Najwan. I think, mm. um, you know, you're only ever as lost as you feel yourself to be. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad I, I didn't go with my original thinking and why I wanted to talk about readership, because I wondered at a reading or my reading uh, around this idea that if we continue to be so simplistic, if we continue to have these very one-dimensional media representations and, and social readings, that in fact the lost Arabs might be this idea that there is community, that there is a way of us all as a country, as a people, to come together, that that would be lost to us. That if we are, if if me as a white mm. Australian is going to say an Arab man is a cartoon stereotype that I read about in the Telegraph, then any possibility of of community with that person is lost to me, which is a completely different reading. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> Look, uh, every, everyone is, is welcome to their readings of the work. Um, I'm really interested to see what people come up with. I don't, mm. I don't just want to hear my own thinking echoed back to me on this. Mm. Um, I, I do just want to encourage uh, a spectrum, right? I think identities are, exist on a spectrum. Um, and any kind of, of gatekeeping around them is inherently violent mm. it ends up alienating and excluding um we need a more fluid approach to to who we are and how we're operating um and we also need to be able to explore our, our darker sides our, our our fantasies and our nightmares so that's something that i wanted to do in this book i definitely don't want anyone to come to my work and think well this is an authentic representation of an arab you know mm. what i mean to who to who, mm. uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that that it exists, and um, we just need to be encouraging as much as possible of a diverse and diverging uh, range of of writings and readings, mm. in particular. Omar Seker is the author of The Lost Arabs. It is a collection of poems that is out now. I cannot encourage, uh, encourage you, dear listener, more to check it out. Omar, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this great conversation with Omar Seker. Omar's latest poetry collection is The Lost Arabs, and it's out now through University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. If you look for at Final Draft 2SER, that's where we are. If you click subscribe in your podcast app, that means there'll be a new great conversation every week. Or in this case, the last couple of weeks, there might be two. It's a way to keep up with all the books, writing and literary culture. And uh, yeah, get a little bit more inside those books that you love. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.